This morning, as we come to God's Word, we trust that as we hear it, the Holy Spirit is going to be at work in us, that God the Holy Spirit is going to be here, and as we hear the Word, will be conforming us to the image of the Son and helping us to grow in holiness. So let us pray as we remember this fact of who we are in Christ. Triune God, grant us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of the, your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Amos 5. Turn with me in your Bibles to Amos 5, and we will be reading verses 18 through 27 today. Hear the word of the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-felling stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? Have you lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves? Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Our responsive psalm today continues our journey through Psalm 119. Today we say responsibly verses 57 through 64. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Our New Testament passage for today brings us to the middle of Ephesians chapter 4. As we finish this chapter, we read verses 17 through 32. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. 
Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Here ends the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Amen. As we look at our world, it is easy to become discouraged. In so many ways, we can see good being called evil and evil being called good. We see depravity on so many levels and we can be discouraged. Holiness is hard enough, but when you live in a world that doesn't even think about the idea of holiness, it can be even harder. And I think that one of the greatest temptations that we have living in a fallen world is looking at the way things are and thinking, well, at least I'm not like that. Wouldn't it be great if that was the standard? Wouldn't it be wonderful if that's what holiness was, if we could just look at others and weigh ourselves against them and then call it holiness? But we know that isn't the case. Holiness is the call on our lives by God, and it isn't a sliding scale. And it isn't in comparison to whoever we think sins more than we do. And while we know that this is true, it's still hard to practically live this out in the world. But it's important that we understand that this has always been the case. We naturally look back with nostalgia on the good old days when the world was a better place. But even then, even then, the world was not concerned with holiness. Being a Christian and living by God's standards is always going to be in contrast to the world. As I've studied many of the issues that we face in our modern world, I have found out that the early church faced most of the same issues that we do. Yes, even some of the big issues that concern us in our time. The early church was at odds with that culture of the Roman Empire and their pagan way of life that the world chased after. And so as we come to our passage today, we find that so much of what the Apostle Paul has written applies to us today because regardless of time or place, a fallen world will always be at odds with God's law. And it's with this in mind that we come to our passage from Ephesians this morning. And there are a few things that jump out at us as we come to this first verse. The first thing that 
Paul is really being emphatic here is what we see. He's telling his readers how they are to live, and he says that he insists on it in the Lord. We are to understand here that this is important. What he's about to charge us with is in, in how we are to live our lives isn't some advice that he's planning to give, to throw out there, and then, then we can either take it or leave it. That's not what Paul's doing here. He wants these people to understand, he wants us to understand that all of this mercy and grace that God has bestowed upon us does not mean that we have a license to sin and do as we please. God's saving grace is instead to cause us to live a life that desires to conform to God's law. And the other thing that we see here that jumps out at us is saying that they must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, that's interesting. As we've seen here in Ephesians, uh, Paul has spent a significant time talking about how the walls between Jews and Gentiles have come down in Christ. And now he's essentially bad-mouthing Gentiles, right? That seems kind of off to us. But we have to remember the distinction that Paul has made. Yes, the wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down for those who are in Christ. His talk about unity isn't general unity between two people groups. It is a unity of a new people group. And that group is those who are in Christ, those who have been united to him in his death, resurrection, and ascension. And so what this is saying is that they've been pulled from a particular way of viewing the world. And now, because they are in Christ, they must not return to that way of thinking. Whether they are Jew or Gentile, they, mu they must not live as the Gentiles do. And that is because that way of thinking, that way of seeing the world is futile. And why is that? Because their pagan view of the world rejected the idea that there was one God and that he was sovereign over his creation. Whether it was in literature classes or history classes, we're all likely aware of the way in which the Romans and other pagan groups viewed the world. To them, the gods didn't really have any true power. To use the word God seems sort of not the right word to use because they were like us in those stories we studied in Greek and Roman mythology. And that was because the essential idea of paganism was that all was one. And morally, there, there was no true standard of right or wrong that came from the gods because there wasn't one God who could dictate this. In fact, remembering back to those stories, you may remember that many of the characters in those stories that they called gods were filled with immorality themselves. And so you can see why this is described as futile thinking. If you don't have an understanding of an all-powerful, sovereign creator who is involved with his creation, you aren't going to have a good understanding of God's law. And without a good understanding of, law, of God's law, you will struggle. You will not be able to understand the gospel. And without a good understanding of that, we're without hope. And this is because the gospel addresses a very specific problem. That problem is the sin and death that has come about because sin is treason against a holy God. If morality is up for grabs, then I don't need a savior from sin. 
And that's why the pagan way of thinking is described here as futile. It not only doesn't give us a framework for how to live, it also doesn't need the gospel as the power of God into salvation to rescue us. And that is why the gentle way of life was one that was separated from God. It was rooted in their pagan way of seeing the world. Because of this separation from God, their way of life did not line up with the law of God, and they were ignorant of the true nature of who God was. To move from a pagan understanding of these gods that they worshipped to a biblical understanding of the one true God who is sovereign over his creation That was a very substantial change in the way of thinking. The hearts of the pagan Gentiles are hard and they know nothing of the way of God. The imagery used here is that they're darkened. They do not have the light that they need to understand God, to understand his law, to know the gospel, or even to know his creation. And this is important imagery because we can really understand it. We've we've all been in the dark even in rooms that, that we think we know by heart, if it gets pitch dark in there, you can do some damage to yourself, right? During the winter months, it's cold, so I usually come in early in the morning through this door over here. And at first I thought, I knew the room pretty well. I'll just walk through. It's a wider, wider aisle, I'll go through here. But lo and behold, these monitors right here would get put in my way. Now, I never fell and seriously hurt myself, but I think there might be a few divots in my shins from them. It was a room that I knew, but because it was dark in here, I couldn't navigate myself well. I've learned my lesson now. I go down the side. But the truth of the matter is, if we're in the dark, even if we think we know, we are in danger. You can do damage to yourself. And in the darkness of their minds, pagans cannot properly navigate God's world. They will stumble around. There's futility. There's a lack of understanding. In the darkness, they can't find God. And because of this, Paul tells us what the result is. There's no remaining sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality, we read here. And this leads to indulgence of every kind of impurity. And from that comes a lust for more of it. And we know what this means. We don't need to have this spelled out for us because the word of God is clear on the sins of the flesh. This indulgence in sensuality, we understand what that means because it is in front of us everywhere. It doesn't take long for us to find sensuality promoted and pushed. And this is a struggle with the desires of our flesh. Once again, It's easy for us here to condemn what is happening in the world and give ourselves credit for not being as bad as others. But our call, as we see here, is to flee these things. Our call is to be holy, not to be better than others. This is a struggle in our day, and it was a struggle in the day when the book of Ephesians was written. We like to think that this is all new, but the truth of the matter is that what we see in our world they experienced in their world. And it's important that we understand what the call on us as believers is here. It is to flee from it and to turn away from it. Paul does not tell them to capitulate to the culture around them. Instead, they are to stand apart from it. They are to be different. And this is because we have learned who Christ is. 
We would understand the righteousness and holiness of God in a different way because of this. The previous way of life is to be in the rearview mirror because we are now moving towards Christ. And I think it's essential that we understand something that is difficult for us to grasp in our minds. The decisions to go against God's law are bad decisions, and obviously they are. But I don't think we often really realize that our sinful actions also reflect the deficiency in how we view the world. We have seen that Paul has talked about the way they thought as pagans, and then that led to their sin. And we see this in our time. When, when the world rejects God and then sees sinful acts as no big deal, this is because the way they view the world tells them this is okay. For example, if I believe God made human flesh and it is good, then my body actually matters. And what I do with that body actually matters. But in pagan thought, the spirit was all that mattered. They were trying to ascend to a higher level of spirituality. That was all they were trying to do. And so the body didn't matter. And so all these ancient pagan rituals were involved in all kinds of sensuality because of this, because the body didn't matter. There wasn't a God who created it all, and it was good. Basically, and you'll recognize this from our day, the motto was, if it feels good, do it. And whatever I think within me about who I am, I, I do that. And while the average person wouldn't express it this way, what we are saying when we do that is we're saying that God does not determine how I live, or we're saying how I behave is on me because ultimately I'm autonomous. I make the rules. And right there, a violation of the first commandment. I have another God, and it's me. I do what I want. I make the rules. It's the way it's always been. We see ourselves as the lawmakers. And that is why Paul is so adamant about the way that we think be different. We need to change our thinking, and that's why he uses this language here. You have been taught Christ. You know who God is. You know what the standard of holiness is. You know that your personal pleasure and, your and fulfillment isn't the goal. The goal is to bring glory to God and to follow him in holiness. And that's why he tells his readers to put, put off the old self. This isn't a tweak here or a change there, and finally you'll be a better behaved individual. You need a wholesale change your way of viewing the world needs to be transformed. Renewal of the mind needs to happen. And a new self needs to be put on. One that seeks after who God is and pursues Him in righteousness and holiness. Perhaps one of the most powerful ways that I have ever seen this represent, re represented, this idea of taking off the old self and putting on the new, is in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader from the Chronicle of Narnia series, Chronicle of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. In that book, the two youngest Pevensey children who, who've been to Narnia before get into the world once again, and this time their awful cousin Eustace ends up coming in with them. And he's a nasty little boy, nasty little boy. And at one point, he runs off by himself, and he finds a dragon's treasure. He puts on a gold band on his arm, 
from this treasure, and he falls asleep, and he awakens the next day to discover that he has become a dragon. He has become who he was on the inside, and it's now visible on the outside. And as a dragon, he eventually realizes how terrible he has been and feels sorry for how he has treated everyone. And eventually, through this process, he ends up on the top of the mountain in a pool with the great lion, Aslan. And Aslan tells him to undress, to take off the old self. And he pulls away at the layers of his, his dragon's skin, and it doesn't do anything. He just keeps pulling, and nothing happens. He peels away three layers. And finally, Aslan informs Eustace how this needs to work. The lion says that he must remove the dragon layers. And this is how Eustace describes it. The very first tear that he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And then Eustace describes how he felt splashing around in that water afterwards and realizing that he was truly a person again. What powerful imagery. Our old self is not easy to take off. It requires that we have a complete wholesale change and we need to be created into the likeness of God. The Spirit must be at work and we have to be made new. We don't just throw off our old self on our own. We need God to do this work in us. And I told this story from the voyage of the Dawn Treader for a specific reason. Eustace tells his cousins that Aslan had to cut deep into him and tear it off. It hurt. If we expect to have a change of life, a change of thinking, and if we think it will be easy, we are delusional. Changing how we think and becoming holy and righteous is wonderful, but can, it can also hurt. It's hard. Our old self is deep, and to make a change is not easy, but we can trust that God is working in us through his word and spirit to conform us to the image of Christ, to tear off the old self and to put on the new. Our sin and unbelief is great. There is so much of it. But Jesus did not leave glory to take on flesh for you, to die for you, and to rise again for you, to abandon you. Jesus did not leave glory to bear the wrath of God for our sin, to save us, and then to leave us on our own. He did it to sanctify us, to make us holy. And so hear the word of the Lord and be comforted by it. But when it also cuts you deep and convicts you of your sin, remember that the Holy Spirit is working. That's why it hurts. Because God is cutting you deep and conforming you to the image of the Son. He is putting on the new self as we are convicted of our sin and as we repent. And as this passage concludes, it gives us the practical application of this good news that God is working in us. It tells us how we should live. When we put on the new self, it's reflected in how we interact with others. Putting off the old self means putting off falsehood. And putting on the new self means speaking truthfully. And specifically here, we see that Paul is speaking within the church. 
But this applies to all of our neighbors. We are, we are also to be angry without sinning, we see. And we struggle with this, but we, we see how this is done by our Lord Jesus Christ. He became angry when the temple was misused, but he did not sin. And we also have another well-known statement that we should not let the sun go down while we're angry. But we need to remember the reason given here, our anger can give the devil a foothold. Our anger can fester within us and give Satan opportunity to tempt us further. And we also see that the command against stealing should lead us to do honest work. But the focus isn't that we should get more for ourselves. He doesn't tell us to to work so we can get more for us, but that we should work so that we can share with those in need. Perhaps the most challenging part is how we're to talk with one another. We must not have unwholesome talk, but we just don't need to refrain from speaking in a bad way. That's that's not the point here. We also need to build others up according to their needs. In the body of Christ, we see that this is a benefit to speak and to build one another up. And this is hard because I think we struggle with worrying that maybe we're being corny or perceived as being fake. But this is a good reminder that building each other up is a significant part of who we are as the body of Christ. And we have some folks among us who are so encouraging and are an excellent example of how to do this right. They build others up. I'm so encouraged when when I see people have tracked someone down to tell them how much they appreciate them. Or when someone tracks down a student athlete and tell them they did a good job at a recent game. As Christ's body, we are to be building up, not tearing down. And the best remedy for this is to be encouraging, is to be telling one another these good things, to speak in a way that is becoming and building one another up. And a lot of this is convicting. Maybe some of these things that we're called to do, it hurts a little bit as we hear them. We remember falsehoods we have told this past week. Maybe we have anger fostering in us right as we even sit here this morning in worship. Maybe even today we've torn someone down instead of building them up. But I love how this, how this passage ends for us today. Because even as Paul speaks of these things that convict us of our sin, he reminds us that we are a forgiven people. We're told that our sin can grieve the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Don't turn away this because it it grieves him. Don't turn away from God. Turn towards him. This is bad, but, but yet Paul reminds us that the Holy Spirit sealed us for the day of redemption. He doesn't want us to forget that we are a saved people. And even though we struggle with all this stuff, even though we sin, we are sealed in God because of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Even as we struggle with all these things, we are to be reminded that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that we should get rid of all anger and slander and malice and instead be kind and compassionate and forgiving. Why? Well, it's a reminder. Because God has forgiven you in Christ. All these places that we can fail all these ways that we can grieve the Holy Spirit, and yet Paul comes back to the gospel is how our lives are to be directed. And he reminds us that we are sealed for the day of redemption. You are Christ's own even when you struggle with this stuff. You are his and he has you. Paul just can't get away 
from the good news of the gospel. And so as we leave from here today, that should be our focus. We forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. We love because he first loved us. So may we be a people of God who builds up, a people of God who speaks the truth, a people of God who shares with those in need, not because it's the right thing to do, but because we fully understand that this is what God has first done for us. And so we respond to this good news in loving gratitude for all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Amen.